welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Ivy League Murders. Yes, welcome back. We want to thank everyone for tuning in again. And we have a great show today and we're going to dive right in. But first, we want to just talk a little bit about the school that's involved. In this. <laughs> and what school is it this week, Sarah? What a surprise. It's Harvard again. It's yet Harvard. again. We were thinking we could just change the name of this show to Harvard Murder. <laughs> Because that's kind of what it feels like sometimes when we're doing research. There is a disproportionate amount of Harvard. This time it's Harvard Business School. And unfortunately, the victim in this case, Rusty Schneiderman, went to Harvard Business School. Sarah, for most of us, for the masses, Harvard is Harvard. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) Those of us who didn't attend. (laughs) So we're not going to bore everyone with the background of Harvard again. We're going to just dive right into the case because this is a pretty juicy one. It's true. I kind of wish I had gone to Harvard Business School. I think I'd be making a lot more money, Yeah, a lot more bank right now. I think many of us wish we had gone to Harvard Business School. So so let's dive right in, Sarah. Okay, so on November 18th, 2010, 36-year-old Rusty Schneiderman dropped his toddler son Ian off at the Dunwoody Prep Daycare Center in a quiet, upscale suburb of Georgia. It was just another day, right. As Schneiderman walked back to his car, a gunman pulled up and shot him four times. The daycare was located in a busy strip mall and people rushed over to try to help the gravely injured man. The witnesses spotted the bearded gunman in a silver SUV with no license plates before he sped off. In the mall, there was an orthopedic clinic. A doctor and a nurse tried to perform CPR on Rusty, but he later succumbed to his injuries. The daycare center immediately called Rusty's wife, Andrea, at 9.25 a.m. and told her that an accident had happened and that she needed to get to the daycare center right away. They assured her that her son, Ian, was fine. Andrea, an executive at GE, raced to the daycare center. When she got there, she collapsed and police prevented her from seeing her husband. They immediately got Rusty into an ambulance and rushed him to a nearby hospital. Rusty Snyderman was pronounced dead. He had been shot multiple times and suffered massive blood loss. The descriptions of this are really horrible. What I've read about this, Laura, was that the gunman approached him from behind, shot him four times, and that there was so much blood 
that the blood literally ran down the sidewalk onto the street part of the parking lot. I mean, it is right, Sarah. Awful. And this is a parking lot of a daycare center, uh, right in front of the daycare right. center. Right. I mean, there's parents and children in the parking lot. I mean, this is an upscale suburb, a bedroom community. This is just not something they ever expected to hear gunshots ringing out in this area. Absolutely, and they wondered who could have done this to Rusty because, by all accounts, Rusty had no enemies. He was a good father, a good son, and a real bright light, according to his family. Sure, he had the normal wranglings with his higher-ups in corporate America, but nothing that would explain him being shot dead. The guy had no enemies. The police began to investigate immediately, and there were a couple of red flags that came up. Shortly before he was shot, Rusty had called the police saying he had seen a man lurking around his house. He described the man to the police as looking like a, quote, Mexican worker, his words, and the man had run off. And also, I mean, I want to just mention here that this was like a predominantly white neighborhood, so a Mexican would have been considered like an outsider. True. Especially their complex. And their complex, so to say that, would have been like an outsider. So I think, you know, Mexican is kind of code word for that. So that was a little racial profiling, in my opinion. So Rusty was also an entrepreneur, and he had a simple idea for a company, and it was called Star Voice. So what's Star Voice, Sarah? Star Voice, his idea, which I think was quite good, was that choose your favorite celebrity. Okay, let's say you're a teenage girl and it's Justin Bieber at that time. I love Justin Justin Bieber too. So he would get Justin Bieber to leave a voicemail for, let's say the teenager was Tiffany. You know, so Tiffany would have Justin Bieber on her voicemail saying, me and Tiffany are going and having coffee right now. Leave a message, you know, that kind of thing. So that's the whole idea behind Star Voice. In fact, the day that he was shot, Snyderman had a lunch meeting with his partner and also a prospective investor. So as always in murder cases, the police always look to the spouse. And in this case, that was Andrea Snyderman. The police questioned Andrea and wanted to know the basics. Did they have a happy marriage? Were they having any problems? They had two small children. So they wanted to know what the reality was for this family, Sarah. And, you know, the Snydermans, like so many young urban couples, were building their future. They had two small kids, Sophia, who was six at the time, and Ian, who was two. And what a horrifying reality this family had to face with their father's death. For a while, Andrea had worked at home and Schneiderman had sort of suffered through the corporate grind. At some point, it really became clear that the corporate ladder was not going to work for Rusty and that he was going to have to break out on his own. So Andrea took on the corporate mantle and started working for General Electric. She's very good with computers, apparently. Although she signed up with the understanding that she would have time at home with her family, the reality of it when she joined GE as a quality systems manager, it just demanded more of her time. And can I just inject here because we're saying the police are starting to question Andrea. We'll get back to this later, but she'll be her own worst enemy in questioning. And the police really didn't have a whole lot to go on. Like murders just did not happen in Dunwoody, Georgia. It was one of Georgia's ITL, meaning inside the loop, upper middle class leafy suburbs. It must be somebody outside of Dunwoody. But who 
and why they wanted it to be somebody from outside oh, of Don sure. Woody. I mean, not when I say an outsider, you know, they really wanted it to be an outsider. The last thing they wanted it to be was somebody from inside. But it became apparent pretty quickly that it may be somebody from inside. A shaky description of a bearded assailant who may have been wearing a fake beard didn't help nail down the suspect. Nonetheless, the police drew up a composite sketch based on witness descriptions. They reviewed the surveillance tape. On it, they saw a blurry image of the gunman's silver SUV. It had no plates. It looked like every other soccer mom's SUV, and they couldn't even make out the model. So the police drilled down, and by process of elimination, they narrowed it down to a Kia Sedona. And then they went on an exhaustive search for all the 2010 silver Kia Sedonas that were sold in Georgia. And when that went nowhere, they started calling rental car agencies. I have to give it to them that they did a great job. I mean, this is old fashioned police work. This is barely, they are looking forensically at the surveillance tape, trying to figure out it could be a Ford, it could be a Toyota. It's a silver SUV, it's a very common vehicle. So the police also discovered some interesting information when they started looking at Andrea. She was at work at the time of the shooting. So this is her alibi, ostensibly. They also find a $2 million life insurance for Rusty, but the Schneidermans had money. Yeah, I think she had a life insurance policy too. So that what I mean, right. that wasn't super unusual that a young couple like that making that kind of money would have those type of policies. Exactly. So the day after the shooting, the police asked Andrea if there was anyone who might want to harm her husband. She suggested maybe my boss, Hemi Newman. But I don't think so. Yeah, she reluctantly suggests this. So who was Hemi Newman? Well, her boss, Hemi Newman, was a mild-mannered executive. Mild-mannered. He's a little more like a crazy executive. (laughs) He seemed like an unlikely suspect. Much of their job at GE was traveling to sites and overseeing production. And they had formed a friendship. They connected. They were both pretty observant and Jewish. And Andrea had been out of job market for some time. And in a way, when she had gone back, she was looking for guidance. And he had really become like a mentor to her. Ironically, Andrea had found the position in GE because she was in the same book club as Hemi Newman's wife. But behind the scenes, Hemi's marriage to Ariella, his wife, was falling apart. Although Hemi was a high-earning executive... The Newmans were living beyond their means and falling into debt. In fact, their house was even going into foreclosure. Things were really unraveling. Things at home were not ideal for the Schneidermans either. Rusty now took on more of the house and kids, but he was also trying to get his new business off the ground. Andrea's job was more demanding than anticipated, and the couple, like so many couples, Laura, were arguing about who does what, and each was feeling overwhelmed and stressed. That's a hard balance to, you know, that life-work balance when you have two small kids, it's tough. What happens next is kind of the subject of some conjecture, but Hemi and Andrea began traveling more and more. Their relationship became closer. Hemi told Andrea that he had feelings for her and wanted to marry her. And Andrea seemed to go along with his overtures and then pull back. So meanwhile, the police were still trying to locate the Kia. They found a rental agency who gave them the number of a person who had rented the silver Kia Sedona the day of the murder. The police dialed the number and Hemi Newman (laughs) answers the phone. Yeah, really not a good criminal. Nope. Newman was now firmly in the police suspect scope. They brought him in for questioning. 
Although they did not immediately reveal to him the explosive evidence against him, the police didn't Mirandize him until well into the interview. Then they pounced. Oh, my God. I, I mean, Laura, you could hear it in the interview. You can almost feel the air yes. changing because yep. they really have this. We're just a bunch of guys sitting around. Shooting, right. We're all friends here. Shit, yep. You and know, it's just, just, you know, boom. what can you add to our investigation? Sure. And then they just they just start hammering at Newman. Once they Mirandize him, he knows he is the suspect. So there's an overwhelming mountain of evidence against Newman. He had bought a gun from a man shortly before the murder. The man had given one of the shell casings to his girlfriend before he sold the gun to Newman. The police found the girlfriend and the casing, and it matched the casings that were found at the murder scene. They also noted gun ranges that Newman had practiced at. In Georgia, that's nothing that would raise eyebrows. I mean, gun ownership is widespread, but this is mere weeks before Rusty was shot. Coincidence? I think not. There are some humorous moments when they ask Newman about a gun safety course that he took. He said, I just didn't want to see anyone get hurt. It's like, dude, what part of reality are you not? I think it's funny that the girlfriend kept the bullet for all those years. Well, thank God she did. No, I mean, that's only a direct... A, only an ex-girlfriend would do like, yeah. that. That's yeah, like something I would have. Totally. 20, 20 years, like, no, wait, it's in my basement, in my, right. in my box. <laughs> and also remember the man that was lurking around the Schneidermans? That was Hemi in disguise. Rusty's life had probably been spared actually by a gas leak. He smelled the gas, and when he went out to investigate the smell, that's when he finds the man laying in his yard. And the man, who was Hemi, ran off. So Hammy was dressed as... He was in disguise. He was in disguise. Yeah. So and what was his motive, Laura? I mean, I think it was love, obsession. He really kind of had this fantasy that him and Andrea were going to get married and he was going to raise her children. I mean, the children seem to be a big part of this fantasy too, which is very bizarre to me. It is bizarre. Didn't we read or hear that she had sent like 200 photos of her kids to Exactly, to 200, Hemi. which I think is really, really crazy. Yeah. yeah. And he talked a lot in their messages about wanting to raise her children. It's very crazy. I think Hemi wanted to start his life again, and he, I think he wanted to start it again with Andrea. Yeah, you know? I, and, I, I agree. But and, I, he's obviously in full flight from reality, and he's going through a divorce, financial difficulties. He just wants to start his life again, but takes a really bad path. Right, and that. this really begs the question, you know, what Hemi's involvement is pretty cut and dry, but what, if any, was Andrea's involvement in her husband's death? During the course of the investigation, the police found evidence that Andrea Snyderman had lied to them. So was she simply downplaying her relationship with Hemi, or was her involvement more nefarious? Yeah, and we'll address that a little bit later on, but let's get to Hemi Newman's trial. At Newman's trial, his lawyers had no choice. They went for an insanity plea because it was so clear that he had done this. Although Hemi Newman looked and acted very much the mild-mannered, normal executive, his lawyers argued that he was bipolar and suffered from delusions. In these delusions, Hemi allegedly spoke to a demon and an angel. The demon sounded like Barry White. sounded like Olivia Newton-John, the Australian actress from Greece. 
the press, <laughs> they ate this up. Why does Lauren? a demon have to sound like Barry White? <laughs> Barry White's like an angel. <laughs> he is an angel, but you're absolutely right. But I think it's that deep baritone kind of voice that <laughs> Hemi was trying to describe. I also want to say that although people often think that pleading insanity is an easy plea, it's not, especially after the John Hinckley case in the 80s when he shot Reagan and Brady. The insanity plea and, and the punishments got much stricter after that time. It's virtually impossible to get an insanity plea. And if you do, you're going to serve probably more time. It's true. It's really a misconception people have. One of the people that testified at Hemi Newman's trial was his sister. And what she told people was that they'd grown up in Israel and that his father, Hemi's father, was a Holocaust survivor. His father, I'm sure, was messed up by the horror and trauma of living through literal hell. The father was angry, and according to Hemi's sister, he took all that anger out on Hemi. So did Hemi have a screw loose? Did this mentally ill man become obsessed with Andrea Schneiderman and hatch a plan to kill Rusty Schneiderman so he could take his place? It's crazy, yes, but was it crazy enough? Do you know what's interesting, Sarah, is this is the second case we've had with a child of somebody who was, you know, we, we had the child of an SS officer who was also was a murderer. It's our third, third actually, yeah. because Rob was also the child of, the a, child of Holocaust right. so survivors. It's an, it's, it's That's Raphael Rob. Right. And who, Dirk Reinader was the child of an SS doctor. Yep. So this, we were kind of seeing this second generation phenomenon of trauma. That's right. And on so, both sides. We've seen it from the victim side and from the perpetrator side. Absolutely. I mean, to live through that madness, I, I just cannot imagine. But you're right. The insanity defense got a lot harder after the attempt on Ronald Reagan's life. It was no longer enough to prove that somebody was crazy. Here's the thing. Hemi's lawyers had to prove he was insane and could not distinguish between right and wrong at the time of the shooting. So in come the mental health experts on both sides, and it is a battle. So then let's talk about this. At the time of the shooting, did Hemi Newman suffer from mental illness? I believe he did. I believe he did too. I believe he had a, you know, a history of suffering from mental illness. And I think that, that people testified to that. Did he know right and wrong at the time of the murder? I believe he did. I think it's the planning that was involved in executing Rusty Schneiderman that really underlies the, the insanity. Right. And, and, you know, and he, he rents the SUV, he takes the plates off, he buys a gun secondhand so it's not super traceable back to him. Mm -hmm. He goes to a gun range, goes and stalks him outside of his house. In disguise. In disguise. He learns Rusty's pattern. And buying a fake beard at a Halloween store. Right, to, it's all very premeditated. It's definitely the actions of somebody who is planning and who who knows, who can distinguish right from wrong and is trying not to get caught. Yeah, all these actions right. pointed to premeditation. Right, and I think this is why it's more of a mitigating circumstance. And one thing, I'll mention the book and we'll post the book. I just also wanted to take this opportunity to put a big plug in for Michael Fleeman's book called Crazy for You. It's a deeper dive into this case and highly, highly recommend it. We did very wide research on this, but that was one of our sources. So just wanted to give Michael Fleeman props for doing that and he did a great job on the book. 
In any case, one interesting thing that Fleeman mentions in his book is that during the murder trial, Ariella, who was Hemi's estranged wife, if you remember, was suing him for divorce and trying to locate assets of Hemi's. Ariella's divorce attorney subpoenaed the prosecution to turn over their discovery. And then after some back and forth, Judge Gregory Adams said no you guys can't have the discovery on this. But during Hemi's trial, all eyes were on Andrea Snyderman when she takes the stand. So she really becomes, she's like really bizarre. So she's really like the prosecution's witness. But then when she goes to testify, it kind of turns on her in kind of an interesting way. And all of this is online if anybody wants to listen to her. She's really like a hostile witness. So listening to her is pretty interesting. I think she's kind of a hostile person. (laughs) And it didn't do her any favors. Yeah, she's not very likable, to say the least. Yeah. And I think the question everyone was asking, did she play a part in her husband's death? Hemi's attorneys and the prosecution both went after her in many ways. The trial, in many ways, at that point becomes more about her than Hemi. Was she a black widow who had manipulated a mentally ill man to kill her husband? They virtually put her on trial as well. So what happened? The jury could come back with guilty for first degree murder, not guilty by virtue of insanity or a third option. Hemi was ultimately found guilty, but with mental illness, and he was sentenced to life without parole. And Sarah, I actually agree with this sentence. Yes, I think uh, it's very fair. Yeah, I think the jury got this one right. But this still leaves the troubling question of Andrea Schneiderman. No sooner was the ink dried on Hemi's sentence than the prosecutor started building their case against Andrea. Andrea's trial started on August 6, 2013. She was facing over 12 counts, impeding a police investigation, lying to police officers, and perjury. And in a powerful opening statement, Kelly Hill, who is now a judge in DeKalb County, laid out the charges. We'll play you a little soundbite here of Hill because it's one of the best opening statements I've ever heard in a case. The evidence will show how their relationship ended in the murder of her husband. The evidence will show that she suspected Hemi Newman immediately. And the evidence will show, ladies and gentlemen, that she lied. Throughout the investigations and throughout the trial of her husband's murder. That is what the evidence will show. The prosecution called a number of witnesses who definitely pointed out that Andrea was having trouble with her marriage with Rusty Schneiderman and that her affair with Hemi was a lot deeper than she had originally presented, essentially. Andrea's defense attorney does a great job too, and he presents a very compelling case for Andrea. Rusty, he said, was the love of Andrea's life and also that the position at GE was a new and scary one and that she kind of relied on Hemi to see her through this process, basically. Right. And to be clear, she denies this, that there's an affair. She completely denies it. She just says that they're close friends and that, you know, he had feelings for her, but they weren't reciprocated and that she drew a boundary. Yeah. And I do have my doubts about Andrea, but let's just break it down. So like we have to break down, there's 12 plus charges against Andrea Schneiderman. Basically, 
Chu's charge with downplaying the relationship with Hemi Newman. When asked, she told the police that Hemi was a possible suspect and that he had hit on her. But Hill pointed out that she told a different story to her friends than she did to the police, showing that she had suspected Hemi from the very get-go. Here's what we, Laura and I, agree for once. And I think <laughs> I think it's that Andrea Schneiderman was not a very likable person. She was very belligerent. She was very rude. She was rude. She's, look, anyone here is welcome. Go on YouTube, listen to her. She's, she's nasty. She's she, not likable. I think that she was partially overcharged for being so difficult and uh, so but, adversarial to the police. But 12 plus charges. And so one of the objections that they have was that Andrea Schneiderman was called at 9.25 a.m. at GE and told there was an accident. She was assured that her son, her toddler son, Ian, was fine. So at 9.30, she calls Rusty's father and says, Rusty's been shot. I'm so, so sorry. However, this is a complicated thing. First of all, the Schneidermans are no great big fan of Andrea's. There was a lot of estrangement after Rusty's shot. I don't know if it's chicken and egg, but she definitely prevented them from seeing the kids. I think they had doubts about her involvement in the murder. In any case, and Rusty's father, six months after, is when he testifies, when he tells the police that she called him directly after. The whole point is, is that Andrea Schneiderman denies anyone telling her that Rusty was shot. You see, and so did she much is made of this because she's told there's an accident. How would she know he was shot if right, she didn't right, have right. some kind of foreknowledge of this? I don't put much credence in this. I think it's just there's nothing's on tape. It's his word against her word at an emotional time. I kind of just yeah. dismiss it. I, to and, me, it's not. It's it's like a and, non-evidence. And, and plus, it's ridiculous. It, they bring Andrea Schneiderman to the Dunwoody daycare. There's blood. There's police tape. She knows it's not a fender bender, for God's sakes. I mean, she knows something terrible has oh, happened. I, I mean, I think he may have misremembered. I really don't know. I think her behavior is very bizarre. I'm going to be honest with you. She had Hemi at the funeral. He, in Jewish tradition, poured dirt over the coffin. She lawyered up right away. She wouldn't cooperate with the police. So there, you know, they did have reason to be suspicious. She was not cooperative. I get it. But I think a lot of this was somewhat based on her personality. Here's in a nutshell. I think that she, the day after the shooting, she says to the police, I think it might be Hemi Newman. By the way, too, I read that Newman's ex-wife, Ariella, was telling the police, it's Hemi, it's Hemi. He's obsessed with her. Go look at Hemi. I so, think she would have been a lot more sympathetic if she had just come out and said, I had an affair with this guy. He's obsessed with me, and I think he killed my husband. Yes, I think I her continuous denial that she had an affair really made her seem like a liar at trial. I think she misdirected the police. She downplayed it. It's not good optics for her. No, I think you she know, didn't for, want to be associated you know, with having an affair and you know, missing the bigger picture, which was the murder. I actually don't think she was involved in her husband's murder, but I think she really miscalculated, like she needed a PR person no. or something to, to direct her on how to behave. But, but what she did is she sacrificed the truth for optics based for her reputation. She did not want to be the woman who had an affair 
on this man that had been shot and it just did not was not gonna look good for her but it, i think it backfired it did backfire because she was found guilty i think to me it's a real gray zone andrea had given the police hemi's name a day after the shooting and that's not impeding an investigation. I think what happened is she suspected Hemi, but she knew if the affair would come out. Again, like I said, it's not good optics for her. What they did find is they found multiple emails back and forth showing a relationship that ran a lot deeper than employee boss. And I think she liked the attention from Hemi. I really do. Who knows what the reality of the Schneiderman's relationship was at that time. And according to her friend, Shana Citron, which the prosecution called in her case, it was not good. Their marriage was on the rocks. Yes. And I think this is where she ran into so many problems with just her testimony being contrary to friends and other people. It just it wasn't consistent. It's true. And there's a lot, there's emails back and forth. There's also, this was the most damning thing for me. There was a waitress at a nightclub called Pulse, not the Florida right, one right. where the- A nightclub in a hotel they were staying. And a waitress said they were dancing, kissing, her hands on her ass. I mean, that's not- employee boss. Right. And when Andrea's questioned about it, she's so defensive and nasty and rude. Her demeanor and the way she answers questions does her no favors. She comes across, I think, to the jury as... She's very arrogant, very very defensive. Right. Very angry. And she just is not a sympathetic witness at all. So what happens? So she's found guilty of many of these charges and sentenced to five years. Right. And she does 22 months. That's right. But she gets out in 10 because there's time served that she's already been in jail. She has since moved on. She's remarried. But there's no love lost between Rusty's family and Andrea Schneiderman. I mean, it's just unfortunate. I think the whole thing could have, if she had been forthright from the very beginning, I think this could have been avoided. I absolutely I mean, I don't think she encouraged Hemi to kill Rusty, but I think had she just been cooperative and forthright, and I don't blame the police when they're trying to conduct an investigation and they feel hindered by the spouse. Yes, but I still think there's a lurking question in people's minds whether she had something to do with the death of her husband. I don't think it's fair. I agree with you. I don't think she knew. I think she had a very volatile, kind of mentally ill man who I don't think she realized the extent to which he was willing to go. Kind of fatal attraction. Yeah, exactly. So why don't you let us know what you think? Do you think Andrea was involved? We'd love to hear from you. And thank you for tuning in for another week of Ivy League Murders. Murder, murder, murder.